Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. (laughs) Well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. Sherry, we've got a guest today. I know. This is a big guest. This is going to be a big deal today. This this is a... She is a big deal. Yeah. Our guest today... Needs no introduction, especially on the Intoxicated podcast, because she is a friend of the show, but we're going to introduce her anyway. Making her third appearance on the Intoxicated podcast today is Amber Hollingsworth, Master Addiction Counselor, the star and the host of the wildly popular Put the Shovel Down YouTube channel. And uh, she runs a, a therapy practice called Hope for Families. Welcome, Amber Hollingsworth, to the Untoxicated Podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. It does feel like we're just, I'm just old friends now. We got this. This will be fun. Always have fun talking to you guys. I know. I think we should own the fact that before we hit record, we were talking about the paint colors in the different rooms because (laughs) uh, Sherry's, Sherry's, we're doing some painting here on our end in the very near future. And she was admiring the color behind your head. I have a story, and I want to see if you relate to this, Amber. And I think this is a great way to introduce what we're doing here today, why we've got you on, and what's going on. When it's time to vote for Sherry and I, with the way voting works here in Colorado, it's all, it's 100% mail-in ballots. So there's no controversy about mail-in ballots, just everybody does it that way. And you get your ballot. And we sit down at the kitchen table with our ballots. This is an idea we got from another married person some time ago. And, you know, in an effort not to both of us waste our time where she would vote for one person and I'd vote for the opposite person and then we cancel each other out. So why did we either of us vote to begin with? We sit down and we go through the whole ballot. And let me tell you, in Colorado, that is no easy task. I don't know why we elect lawmakers. We have to vote on all the laws ourselves. There's all these ballot initiatives. So it it takes a couple hours to go through the ballot, even, and that's even giving it just a minimum amount of time. But we go through, we do our research, and then we negotiate on every ballot initiative and every elected official so that we vote the same. And sometimes uh, I am... A little bit surprised because I think philosophically, Sherry, you and I are very aligned in a lot of ways. You know, parenting, fiscal matters, just how we think things should go. We we know each other, you know, pretty well at this point and tend to agree largely. But we sit down with that ballot in front of us and we can go at it and argue over candidates and uh, ballot initiatives. And that's what I thought of when I thought of this idea for rumble with Matt and Amber. I think, first of all, Amber, do you do you and your husband vote that way? No, I've never heard of that. But I mean, that's super smart. It's like it's like taking your resource, you know, and collectively deciding the, the same way you would with your money or an investment or something. Yeah. I never thought about that, but that's interesting. I like it. Yeah. I, I think the first time we did it was after we had both gone and and we had done it separately and we and then we compared notes afterwards and we're like, oh, well, we both wasted our time. We just canceled each other. (laughs) But so much the same way that I think Sherry and I are philosophically aligned, I think you, Amber, are aligned in all things addiction recovery, almost all things addiction recovery with me and with Sherry and me. But I've noticed over the year plus that we've known you 
uh, both in our direct conversations and also in your wonderful content on the Put the Shovel Down YouTube channel, there are like minor areas where I don't even know if I'd use the word disagree, but your philosophy goes a little bit further in one direction and mine goes a little bit further in a different direction. So I got this idea. Let's not run away from our differences and ignore them. Let's dive into them and let's really explore the areas where um, we maybe have a little bit of disagreement. Sherry's she's shaking her head at me because I'm so like soft pedaling this now because originally I was like, let's let's yeah. rumble. So let's yeah, let's put on the gloves. Let's rumble. Yeah, I got it. I got it. You bring it. (laughs) (laughs) I have no doubt. But then I'm always like, Matt, goodness sakes, like your desire for conflict is a little weird. But I like the idea because then it just kind of gives you two different, you know, options. And and I said, I don't know, it'd be nice to hear from a professional to tell us, you know. (laughs) Yeah, as we've been promoting this in the weeks leading up. Um, you've mentioned a number of times that uh, it's professional against amateur. So yeah, uh, we're just going to have to see how it goes as you do the introductions. I'll, I'll tell you so, this, Matt. I don't know if this helps you feel some better. This would be like our handshake before we duck, duke it out. But like, oh, good, good. You know, I'm, I'm professional. I have like the degree and the license, but nothing of what I teach, nothing of what I do, nothing of what I know comes from that. Every bit of what I know and do just comes from my experience of doing it a hundred thousand times. Like you don't learn any of this in counseling school, so don't worry about it. You didn't miss nothing. Okay, you're good. God, that is that is a great handshake. I do, and I talk about it a lot. I suffer from imposter syndrome quite significantly, so that has helped me more than you could know. So now we can get after it. So the ground rules here. We, Amber, you are in your corner right now, and I am in my corner, and Sherry is the referee, and also you're the announcer, too. I don't know if I told you. You're the the guy that does let's – oh, let's, can you do the let's get ready? Let's get ready to rumble. Is that how he does it? Sort of. I don't know. I, don't, I didn't watch wrestling. I don't think he'd be impressed, but that was decent. Well, yeah. So, uh, Sherry, would you like to do the do the honors? She's She's trying to read. <laughs> The script. Okay. Oh, okay. So you're saying in this corner, yeah. we have Amber. You're a licensed therapist and educator, formal trainer, and years of experience in practice where you and your colleagues have a team approach. Matt, you're an old drunk who seems to now be addicted to asking questions about and developing opinions about addiction. You facilitate peer support groups for both high-functioning alcoholics in recovery and the loved ones of alcoholics in an attempt to feed your addiction. I'm married to one of you and admire most and admire one of you. Can you tell which one it is? <laughs> Good job, Sherry. Thanks. I really feel the love. You feel the love. Yeah. Hey, you're all drunk. <laughs> all right. So round one, Amber, please describe your unique team approach to recovery that you employ in your practice. Absolutely. So I like to call it lawyering. It's really lawyering, not really counseling. What what we do is we help whole families. So we see like um, parents who have children who have addictions. We see spouses. We see the, the whole family system. And the reason we do that is because after years of trying to treat addiction the traditional way, which is just to treat the person with the addiction and tell them what they need to do to get sober and ignore the family member. And if they call you and bother you, say go to Al-Anon. 
which is nothing wrong with that, but they, they usually want a little more than that. Um, I decided this just isn't working anymore. Plus, like, I need help. Like, I need some team. Like, I can't, like, you're bringing me this, you know, like heroin addict and you're saying fix them. And I'm like, dude, I, okay, but like, can you be on the team? And so um, I knew I needed the family help and support. And and they want it. I mean, they, they're they like, please, God, like, tell me, like, I need help. You know, they're asking for it. But but the problem was you run into this sort of conflict of interest where it's like you feel caught in the middle between the person with the addiction and the family. Because, you know, when we first get into this, it's, it's a little tense in there. <laughs> you know, everything's not lined up when we first get in. So that's where I came up with this sort of advocate program. So it's like I have all the information, but you get a lawyer, they get a lawyer, and the two lawyers mediate most of it out behind the scenes and say, hey, this is what we need. We like negotiate things and we try to help move things in the same direction. But we feel like the family approach is so important. But we also feel like you need the room to be able to say what you want to say without worried you're going to start a fight or argument or be uncomfortable. You don't want to do it in the same room because you're just going to make each other mad. So that's why we split it up and do it that way. Lawyering. And I'm like always the defense attorney. <laughs> My people always <laughs> People are always in trouble. <laughs> I, I was going to ask a follow-up about that. Is yeah. that just because that's where your area of expertise is or you just enjoy that? Why don't you guys ever switch roles, you and your partner? We do. We do switch roles. And, and any of us really can do any angle of it. Um, I, I, I work well with men <laughs> because I'm... Um, sarcastic. I have a word I made up, call it hossy. It's like bossy, but like a, a level under that that's more likable, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, and, and I just do good with that. And this is going to sound super stereotypical, but most of the people that come to Dick Street are men. I mean, it's just all there is to it. And most of the family members are women. It's like the mom or the wife. It's not always that way, obviously, but in a large number it is. And so, and they work better with women. <laughs> so it just works good that way. Sometimes if I get a client and it's a addictive person and it's a woman, then they'll see them because I'll probably hurt their feelings. <laughs> Didn't mean to, you know? So, yeah. I, I think that's really interesting and a really honest answer. I, I remember back in college, my best friends, I was in a fraternity and my best buddies, their girlfriends I would get along great with them. And I remember there was one in particular, one of my best friends was like, dude, what are you doing? Are you like trying to make a move on my girlfriend? And I'm like, no, I just like, I don't have any, like, she's your girlfriend, but I don't, I'm just your friend. And like, I knew even back then in my twenties that it was really comfortable, comfortable to, for me to um, have friendship conversations with women. And I think that has something to do with how, our Echoes of Recovery group, which again, like you said, you're not trying to stereotype, but the fact is most of the people in it are women and that is a comfortable environment for me. And I don't think any way that I make them feel uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. So I totally get what you're saying about that. Um, you know, I think stereotypes get a bad rap. I mean, if they're, if they're abused, then obviously that's a bad thing, but there's also just a comfort zone. There's nothing wrong with admitting it and talking about it. Mm -hmm. yeah, it's just knowing who you work well with. And there's certain, it's, it's not as much about gender as it is. Um, I'm super girly in the things that I like. Like, I don't know anything about sports. I can't make sports metaphors. I can't do any of that stuff. Right. But, I, but, I, but there's other things from a man's perspective. I do understand. Like I see a lot of business owners. I understand owning a business. I understand carrying that kind of weight on your shoulder. I, I, pretty adverse to having any kind of victim mindset 
<laughs> I'm just done. I'm like, uh-uh, no, we're not gonna play that. Like, and men just handle that better, you know, that kind of confrontation of like, no, no, you're not gonna feel sorry for yourself. We're gonna we're gonna do this, you know. And it's really more about that. And and it yeah. just comes up that way gender-wise, I think. Yeah. Well, and it's just you being aware of your strengths and appreciating your coworkers' strengths, you know, your team's strengths, and just kind of making sure that the right person is getting the right, mm-hmm. you know, match. So I appreciate that. Um, all right. So Matt, you ready for your question? Do you have a round one question I, for me? I do. I'd love to hear all it. Right. So Matt, I know you suffer from imposter syndrome. You mentioned it once or twice in the beginning of this podcast recording. But I'd like uh, to talk about you it. Do um, and yourself. Um, please tell your audience what you tell yourself about peer support to soothe your insecurity. Ah, what an excellent question. So to me, at the beginning, when I was first getting sober myself, and then I first started to relate to people and have conversations and was like, oh, I, I really enjoy rolling up my sleeves and and working with folks, peer support was like the bottom of the totem pole of ways that people can receive help for when they need recovery. And that, you know, slowly over time, that has moved up the totem pole for me. I remember our, in our Shout Sobriety group, which is peer support for high-functioning alcoholics seeking sobriety, one of the very first people that joined the group was a psychologist. Amber, I was in a cold sweat talking to her on our little one, one-on-one intake conversation. I thought, what could I possibly have to say that this person doesn't already know? And I mean, it, it was a total panic. She has turned out to be a very dear, sweet friend of mine. Even she's, you know, she doesn't actually participate in the program anymore, but she actually gives me advice on things and we've stayed in contact. And that was a huge step for me toward recognizing the importance of group work, because here's someone who individually has all the knowledge, um, but she needs help implementing it. And she needs other people's stories and experiences and support. So that was one. The big thing though, that has happened to me more recently is I've recognized that the benefit of peer support is a sense of belonging. You immediately, when you join the group and you are a storyteller, as well as a story listener, you're not only receiving support, but you're giving support. And so the student becomes the teacher pretty immediately. And my role as the moderator is to stay out of it as much as possible sometimes. Obviously, I'm guiding conversations and you know suggesting prompts and things like that. But a really great group session of peer support for me, I don't talk very much. And people are feeding off of each other and recognizing their own story in other people's stories. And so um, I just, I think that sense of belonging you get from peer support is really, really great. (sighs) There. Yeah. Here's my answer. All right. Well, I've always rather been curious about that considering the years of your attempts at sobriety and, you know, when there was the suggestion of going to AA because that's what, that's what everybody thinks of right away, right? NA or NAA meeting. Um, you would just balk at the idea, like, no, like, no way. I wouldn't want to go and share this with other people. There are so So. many things in my life where before I adopted it and thought it was the greatest thing ever, I thought it was the worst thing ever. I am like, I am like a 180. I'm either hated or I love it. There's no gray area for me. Amber, do you put your folks in group settings at all? You know, what's your take on what I said? Well, um, I'll answer that piece, but first I want to say, you know, it's interesting you have the 
you know, you, you struggle it with the insecurity about, well, I'm not, you know, professional and I have the insecurity of I'm not in recovery. And I used to dodge that question a lot early on because it's literally the first question you get, are you in recovery? <laughs> and, and it feels like you're immediately disqualified if you're not, because the expectation is actually, they don't care. In fact, you get sort of look down on with all the book knowledge like you literally get judged based on that so i promise and i i say sometimes like i wish i was and these days i understand it so good i know i could fake it and i've thought about it because my life would be easier because you like you get immediate street cred i'm like the people recover that was so easy they can just say yeah i'm a recovery five years or whatever and and they just believe you right I gotta work for mine like i gotta like i gotta like prove it <laughs> So I'm I'm jealous of the people in recovery. Like I wish that was my story. Well, oh, that's that's really really interesting. I never thought do, about that. Do you put people in group settings at all, or suggest I, it? I've ran IOPs multiple different times over my career, and I love IOP. Um, and I I do suggest groups. I suggest AA. I suggest Dharma. I suggest all of it. I like to say I'm I'm non denominational recovery. I mm. like it. Like, and, and in my mind, it's just, let me, let me encourage you to try it all. And you come back and tell me what you think. And you come back to me, you hated it. And I'll say, all right, let's try something else, you know? Mm -hmm. And actually, I think when you give people the freedom like that, it actually allows them to feel like, well, okay, I'll try it because they, they don't feel like they're being forced into it, you know? And so it's like, I'm like, come back and tell me what it's like. And then they'll tell me, I'll be like, I know I have people all the time. Right. And I just like, listen to them. And they don't feel like it's like letting the guard down about it. Cause it is scary going into groups. It is really hard to get people to do that. Once they do it, they like it, but it's hard to get them to do it. <laughs> well, and likewise, what we've seen in our groups is it's the people that in addition to doing that group work, they have some individual one-on-one -on -one therapy. Um, those are the people that make the most progress, it seems like, because those are both important components and working together. Uh, they seem to be really a key to people making successful transitions. And I appreciate the fact that you don't force someone to do a certain program. You know, a lot of um, inpatient facilities, rehab facilities, they kind of only gear like one direction. And maybe that's just not the right fit for that person. So letting, giving them a broad assortment of resources to say, figure out what works for you. Mm -hmm. Or maybe it's a couple different things that work for you. I mean, I know that AA has that like, what, you know, 30 meetings in 30 days, like those sort of, mm -hmm. like, that's a lot, especially if you are a working, you know, family or a married person, that's a lot to, mm -hmm. to do. So maybe that feels like a lot of pressure. So offering and opening that up. Yeah. Other options. All right. I had a young man I've been working with recently and he was working with a counselor, a different person before me. And he, and the counselor said, if you don't go to X many meetings a week, I'm not going to see you. And I thought that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard, <laughs> but, but, but that's not uncommon. I mean, that's pretty common actually. It's like a requirement. Um, and, well, it's kind of like an ultimatum. And we, we all know, cause we see how well that works when the spouse presents an ultimatum. That's interesting. <laughs> and this was a young person. He'd already been sober like months. I'm like, what? <laughs> obviously hmm. figuring something out like yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah. that's interesting all right lace up your gloves amber we're ready right, for round, round two. two all right amber when it comes to recovery please talk about the role the loved one of the person severing from addiction has please try to like tell us about the approaches that you suggest to them 
um, and like when to like encourage or be neutral. I think sometimes that's referred to as gray rock or what are your kind of thoughts and approach about that? Unlike, unlike most other programs that'll say, well, you know, you're powerless. You didn't, you can't control it. You didn't cause it, can't cure it. I definitely believe you didn't cause it. Okay. So I don't think you can make someone an addict or an alcoholic, just like you can't make someone not an addict or an alcoholic. Like, so I, I believe in that, but, but I think families have a lot more power and influence than they think. It's just that they've tried so many things and none of it has worked. And so they just think, well, there's nothing you can do. I've tried it all, you know, I've begged, I've screamed, I've cried, I've pleaded, I've been nice, I've been tough, you know, I've done all these things. And so they just give up. And then that perpetuates this thought of, you know, there's nothing you can do as a family member. Like literally all you usually get told is like, we're well, just going to have to wait for this person to hit bottom. And maybe they'll wise up and get insightful and figure it out and go to AA. Like that is literally what families are told over and over and over again. And I just think if I can learn how to get through to someone who has an addiction as someone who has no experience with it, right, who has no credibility in their eyes, who, who they don't even like, didn't want to see in the first place, if I can figure out how to get this person to come on board with it, the family has all the leverage. I'm like, if I can do it and I teach you to do it, I do, you could do it times 3000 and we could really get somewhere. And so that's my thought is, it's like, I'm teaching families all the things I've learned over the years. And in my career, everyone that comes to see me did not want to come see me. Like people literally get tricked into coming. People get told we're going to go eat lunch and dropped off at my office, which I don't recommend by the way. Don't do that. It's not nice. So I'm dealing with somebody who's hostile, right? Who already doesn't like me. They haven't spoken to me. They don't know who I am. They don't like me. So if I can figure out how to overcome that and I can do that, families can do it because they like, they love y'all. Like they want to like you. They love you. <laughs> so like, that's my thing is I can teach families to do what I do because maybe you can't get them to come see a counselor, but I can teach you to do it for yourself at home. Mm -hmm. You yeah. landed some body blows on that one. Uh, that's very convincing. I like what you have to say. I have this image of like somebody bringing in like a feral cat, just um, <laughs> letting it out oh, of the cage. Um, it's a little like that. It's not that. <laughs> yeah. We're going to lunch. No, you're going to therapist. Oh, that would be pretty scary. Well, I like that, you know, you're, cause you've had experience and you're teach going to teach them what you've learned. So let me just get this straight. So you've worked with the person a little bit, you kind of see what kind of connects with them. And then you give that information to the family and your team works with the, the family and kind of. Yeah, we do that. Yeah, like in our sort of lawyering thing. Mm -hmm. We can get down to really specific, maybe where this person's Roblox is and how the family can help with that. But, but just in a general sense, there are just so many global things that work. If you say this, this will work better than if you say that. And that's what I teach on the YouTube channel. Like say this, not that do it this way, not that way, set the boundary this way and not that way. Because, because after, you know, I've seen people with addictions for 22 years, I think now I know what they're thinking and I know what they're thinking about what you're saying. <laughs> and so I know if you tweak what you're saying and you turn it this way, just a half an inch, it's going to work better for you. And they're going to hear you differently. And so that's, I just want to empower families. You do have power. <laughs> there are so many things you can do to help the situation. And the sooner, you know, in the stages of addiction, you can intervene with that stuff, the better. Mm -hmm. in my so, so not waiting until they hit rock bottom. Yeah. 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 yeah.
Like that. All right. Matt, you ready for round two? Round two. What's my round two right. question? Um, let's see. You know, you're kind of a one-trick pony that suggests that detachment for the loved ones of alcoholics works no matter what the circumstances. Do you want to try to defend your oversimplification of that idea considering uh, what Amber just said? Yeah, simple mind over here. So simple theory. Uh, I think it's really interesting, and I've picked up on this before, but I really sense what you said, Amber, that you've more than overcome, you know, your imposter syndrome with having not not being in recovery yourself um, by putting yourself in the shoes of people who are in recovery and really relating to that. I tend to do that with the loved ones. And I, I think it's interesting because for so long, I didn't know what Sherry was going through. I didn't understand it. I frankly didn't care to understand it. But now that I do, I feel like I've jumped the fence and I'm like, okay, what can we do to help people who are experiencing this? And I, I feel like I'm trying to shove my fat feet into the shoes of, of people who are the loved ones of alcoholics. Um, but so, so yes, I am a big fan of detachment. Um, if the person who is being detached on, like I was, uh, mm -hmm. when you, yes. when, when you were, when you were done, when you were done yeah. here in my excuses, you were done here in my new plans, the new rules I was going to put around alcohol, the new thing I was going to try when you were just over, you know, what? hear about the new book I read, you were just done when you were done. Um, I was in a place where the idea of losing my family was the worst thing I could ever imagine. And I, you know, most of the people that we encounter and work with are, are really good people at heart and they are family oriented people. And so there, we meet a lot of people for whom the idea of losing their whole family would be kind of the end of the world. So I've been using this term a lot lately. I talk about the pain concoction, uh, a, a, an addict who's seeking recovery, who's even considering recovery, the, what tips the scale in favor of successful recovery is the pain of continuing to use has to exceed the pain of uh, changing their life and working toward recovery. And I was finally in enough pain in the status quo between the depression and the anxiety that I was suffering. And then you clearly detaching, you clearly had one foot out the door. And, you know, I started thinking about, oh, what's that going to look like? She's going to take the kids and go back to Indiana. And I'm going to be, you know, uh, whatever, thousand miles away from them, from my whole family. And so the, my pain concoction was your, con your disconnection, um, uh, my depression and my anxiety. And that was more painful staying in my addiction than whatever the work was going to be in recovery. And so we have just seen this detachment work, not only in our own lives, but with others a lot of times. But I will say it doesn't always work. Sometimes the addict, sometimes the person suffering from addiction is in a different mental space. Sometimes they're further along in the progression and they feel so hopeless that losing their family almost feels like what they deserve, or they almost feel like they're already causing their pain, their family so much pain anyway. If we just separated, you know, good for them, they'll be away from me because I'm a monster, right? So they're in such a deep place in the shame cycle. So it doesn't always work. But what I say and what I think is, Either way, it, there, it, there are benefits for the person who is doing the detaching, for the loved one, when it comes to protecting their kids, uh, working on nervous system uh, work on their own, getting away from the turmoil and the chaos and the gaslighting and the denials and all of that stuff that's causing 
the loved one pain, that detachment immediately, even as hard as it is and as heartbreaking as it is, because most of the people we meet, most of the people who are attached to where the loved ones, they are just nurturers by nature. So they've never thought about doing something like, you know, what feels like turning their back on the the person suffering from addiction. Um, But when they start to make those moves and they start to detach emotionally and then sometimes physically, sometimes by separating, you know, moving out different locations, they start to feel uh, relief in the nervous system side and um, they start to get the benefits of that piece. And so whether it has an impact on the person suffering from addiction or not, there are always benefits for the person who's doing the detaching. So I recognize the flaws in it, um, but I can't help but but kind of um, encourage people that way because we also see some benefits in there. What do you think, Amber? What do you think about like, like you think I'm I'm telling people to turn their back on the addict and I'm a cold hearted jerk off jerk jerk face? No, I don't think that at all. I think I think actually you're right about the detachment and how it, you know, it's that, I call it the, like the balance scales with the pros and cons of addiction. Is it working more than it's not working kind of thing? Um, But see, there's a secret piece of the formula you just told me that you didn't recognize was happening. And this is why that worked when it worked. Okay. Can I tell it to you? Please. It works sometimes and it doesn't work other times. And here's why. And you said it, you, you maybe just didn't recognize the part when Sherry stopped wanting to listen to my book. I read and this way I was going to try what that means is she let you try all those ways, right? That's a key part of the formula. The formula is, is that when they come up with this, I'm going to try this. I'm just going to drink on weekends. I'm just going to drink beer. I'm just going to drink on special occasions. I'm never going to have more than six, all the crap, right? Then you say, I think that's great. And I really appreciate that you're willing to work on this, right? You say that. And if you say that enough times, and then, I mean, they're going to try it a bunch of times, but eventually once you say, you know what, I'm just done, they're going to know that's fair. And they're not going to hate your guts when you say it. If you don't do that and you scream and you yell and you say, you're never going to get this. You're always going to you do all the things, which is totally fair to say, BTW, <laughs> valid. Okay. Then when you say, I'm going to leave, they're thinking, thank God. They may not say it, but they literally wish you would leave. In fact, they're just getting drunk in front of you, trying to run you off because, because the relationship is so toxic at that point. If you say it's me or the alcohol, they're like, it's the freaking alcohol. <laughs> so the I do think a lot of times it comes to this point where you say, you know, I just can't do this anymore. Like, I cannot do it anymore. Like, I'm done. I have no problem with that at all. But I'll tell you, it's a lot more effective if you set up the right pieces in place before you say that. If what mm. you're trying to get is a change, if you play your cards right, it's kind of like I'm going to play poker. I'm going to play all my cards right and then I'll call your hand. Right. But you got to play all the cards right before that. So you're so you're you talk about in your videos. And I think we talked about it last time you were on the podcast. You talk about encouraging good behavior and being neutral about bad behavior. So you need, what if I'm hearing you right, you need that period of neutrality when I come to Sherry and I say, I'm all, I'm only going to drink on the weekends. She needs to not flip out about that. She needs to say, all right, you do you. Um, and let me try all the things. Uh, and then once I've had those opportunities to try all the things, then we both recognize none of this is working. Right. And then the detachment's right. more effective. So would that be called just giving you enough rope to hang yourself? I think so. 
And, so. and to Sherry's point, to even go further, and what Sherry's saying is, not only do I want you to say, I like it, because that's what I would do in treatment. If you can't tell me that, I say, I think that's a good plan. You're right. Like, literally, drinking twice a month, I mean, that's not a problem. Like, ain't, no one will tell you that's a problem. Let's write that in your treatment plan. Let's write that down. I like it. You know? Not only that, but I don't want the family member to try to help you stick to it, right? So when you say I'm only going to drink on weekends and it's Wednesday night and you stopped at the bar after work on the way home and you're lying saying you didn't, but she smells it on your breath, right? Which is totally going to happen. I don't want you to say anything. I don't want you to say, well, you only said you were going to have three and then make them stop because the worst thing possible is for you to help them make that successful because then they're going to think it worked. And if it worked mm. three times, but it didn't work two times, they're thinking, well, I just, I need to tweak it a little bit. It's going to work. You're going to keep them in that bargaining stage, just what I call it, longer and in denial longer. So when they say they're going to do it, you, you say, okay. And you don't sit there and freak out when it doesn't, because that's what you want. And you want it to happen fast, faster, the better. Mm. You know, we got to go through these bargains. I'm like, let's mark them off the list. Let's get through them. Have you tried this? Let's try that. Let's try this. Let's try all the Oh my God. That's so great. I love that so yeah. much. I feel like I feel like you scored a knockdown in that round. And while rather than just retreating to your corner, you stood over me and you kind of you schooled me <laughs> while you while I was laying on the but you gave me time to get back up and I'm ready for round three. Good job, Amber. Well, and I think like I have said, like like raising the bottom. Yeah. You know, so that I like how that bargaining period can go through faster and faster. Cause I did. I screamed and yelled when he broke his promises or broke his rule. I screamed and yelled and that went on for 10 years, you know, like I think, gosh, you know, if only I had known to just keep my mouth shut and said, okay, well, well you got you try that. You got it. You, we'll, we'll go with that again. I mean, sometimes it you is. You just needed Amber to hurry you along. All right, let's get to the next one. Exactly. What's the next rule? All right. What's well, the next failed attempt? What do you got? What do you got there? Wonder boy. <laughs> All right. All right. Round three. You ready? I'm ready. Are you ready, Amber? Uh, Scott, I'm going to, I'm going to start with you. So you recently conducted some <laughs> informal research about divorce. Yes. And what I mean is like, you just put a question on our Facebook page for our uh, recovery groups. Yes. Just, uh, and there was no method and your results were really not, official, yeah, really was, professional. Yeah, your results were not as satisfying as you had hoped. But um, you seem to have a theory based on, uh, I don't know, I don't know where you guys came up with it, but maybe half-assed listening. But would you in care? Would you care to enlighten us about my half-assed about research? your half-assed research or attempt at research or theory? I would love to enlighten you. I asked folks if the uh, parents of the alcoholic were divorced or not. And what I was trying to come up with is it seems to me that sometimes when I think maybe a relationship is going, you know, sobriety is going to take hold, recovery is going to take hold and a relationship might turn a corner for the positive. Um, sometimes it doesn't happen that way. And they end in divorce. So I was trying to find if there's a correlation for divorce in current marriages with divorce in the parents of the alcoholic and completely unscientific. So like not family, nearly enough data to make any kind of conclusion. So like the divorce rate in the family of origin of the alcoholic right. or the addict. Yeah, because in here, here's where I come by this. 
we have there's been a lot of research done and we've talked a lot about both on the podcast and with people in this situation we've talked a lot about why is it that the adult children of alcoholics often marry alcoholics themselves shouldn't they be the person the people that are most tuned in to what's going on and avoid those relationships and what we have found is often well there's a couple of things one thing is there's just like literally millions and millions of us out there. So you can't throw a rock without hitting one of us. It's hard not to marry one of us. Um, so there's a ton of people suffering from addiction out there. But the other thing is you maybe normalize behavior more quickly than other people would see as a red flag. So if I drink too much, storm around, curse and yell, and then I apologize the next day, you maybe have seen that in your childhood growing up from your alcoholic, one of your alcoholic parents. So that doesn't look as cray cray as it does to someone who's like, no way anyone's treating me like this. I'm out of here. So because the uh, adult children of alcoholics sometimes ignore those red flags, I thought, is there a pattern also where if you are in a family where divorce took place, um, divorce does not seem like the end of the world outcome for you in your own marriage. And you know, like I said, there was there was no statistically significant data collected. Did see a little bit of a pattern to that extent. I think I think it's probably worth research. Maybe there's research being that's already been done, and I just need to to put in the right Google search, dig a little further. But um, but that was you know that was something that I'm curious about, and something that we saw the potential for a pattern, you know, to have emerged there. And so that is what gives me pause when I take this approach about detachment, because if you've got someone who's already uh, normalized divorce to a higher degree than maybe somebody else has, and then you detach from them, or are you just pushing them over that cliff? Okay. Any thoughts on that, Amber? Yeah. That's your round three question. Yeah. What do you think about my, my crap science? I think it's an interesting question. I never thought about the question before, but I feel like there are multiple pieces, actually really important, good pieces that you're bringing into this equation, which is there's, there's one piece you're bringing in, which is, you know, is it true that people that are children of alcoholics tend to marry alcoholics, right? Or there's this thought out there that somehow you just like attract them or something, right? Like, like a magnet or something. So there's that piece. And then there's this other piece, which I'm not sure the two pieces quite go together. That's a thing. And then this other thing is like, why do some couples stay together and why don't they? I'm not sure if it would have as much influence as far as like whether or not your your parents stay together or not. But I bet I'd be interested in, if you want to run another survey, if you looked at who gets divorced and who doesn't, what are the current people around you? How are they supporting you and what are they telling you to do? Because what's happening is the person with the addiction is going, I can, I promise you, I know what they're saying because it's what they say to me. Like I can script it out what they're going to say. My wife, she's a negative. She's just always thinks the worst case scenario is going to happen. She controls everything. She never sees anything good I do. She's always critical of me. And honestly, she's just over freaking reacting. It's because her brother was an alcoholic and she just thinks everybody's a fucking alcoholic. Like, sorry, but like this is what they're saying to me, right? This right. is what so they tell their friends that, and they tell their other. Um, you know, kind of a really good word for this that I can't think. It's like co-conspirator, right? They buy into your story and they validate that. And then the the wife 
is telling, can you believe he, oh, he was supposed to watch the kids and he was drunk and blah, blah. And so you got these other people on the wife's side saying, you just need to leave him. Like, he's not going to get better, blah, blah, Like, and you got all these influences saying that this, you, you need to get out of this. That's what both people are being told. And, and part of the reason is because both people are telling their narrative of that story and the people that care about those people are naturally going to say, you should be treated like that. <laughs> when people come yeah. to tell that story, no matter which side it is, I'm like, well, did you, how did you say that? Well, what did you say? Well, what happened before that happened? <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. because there's more to the story. Well, yeah. you, you've brought in a whole nother subject that is so important, so important for our listeners to hear. We just, as a society in our culture, we are terrible listeners. Every time somebody brings a problem to somebody else, that, that quote listener thinks they have to offer some kind of solution and they aren't good at just sitting with empathy. And so if it's not my relationship, but the person, this person that I care about, this friend of mine, this person that I love comes to me and tells me how terrible this is. Of course, I'm going to want to protect that, that person. And I'm going to say, you need to get out of that as opposed to just being a good listener and being a shoulder to cry on and be in an ear, we feel compelled culturally to offer a solution. We feel like we haven't done our job as a listener unless we've offered some kind of a solution. And that's that's a huge problem because you're right. All of that advice is kind of knee-jerk advice, right? From people who aren't educated, aren't experienced in the, the problem at hand, but they feel like if they don't tell you something, then they haven't done their job as a listener. I think there's that, which is super important, right? Because they, they, in their mind, they're supporting you. They're backing you up. They're having your back. They're doing what they should do as a friend or whatever. But, but what a lot of times people don't realize is that people are inherently terrible narrators of their own story. Yes. <laughs> they are not seeing, therefore they are not telling you the, all the pieces. And so this would happen to me in counseling. It's another reason why I like to see the whole family system, because I, as much as I know about this, I would fall for it every single time, even though I have a hundred videos and I can tell you exactly what someone's going to say when they walk in my office, I would fall for it because they believe it. It's very genuine. And I would say, oh yeah, she is a controlling bitch. You need to get out of there or whatever, you know, like if I didn't have like hearing from my other counselors and same for them, I'm like, oh yeah, but did, did you know the wife did this? You know, like, and it's like, it's having all those pieces to understand that it's not so much that people lie, it's just that people's own narratives are, you know, lacking. Mm -hmm. It's just, they're, they're biased. <laughs> and so yeah. you're not getting the right information to give the right advice. Oh, that's such a good point. Yeah, I th we I all think have our own perspective. You know, we have our own spin on it, our own, like you said, your narrative, but, you know, it's also like, the words and the tone that you hear because you of the way in the state of mind you are like, I mean, we know that just, you know, sometimes you can hear good criticism, you know, that helps benefit your job if you're in a really great place. But if you've had a sour day and you hear that same bit of advice or criticism, you can take that and run with it. And you can spin a whole story in your head. That's not even relatable. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. So it's just that that place and where you well, are in your mind. I think a sign of someone who has done a lot of work in recovery on either side as the addict or the loved one is when you start to be able to put yourself in the other person's shoes and value their perspective. That's a sign that every conversation isn't triggering. Every conversation isn't throwing you into the shame cycle. You're actually able to take the perspective of the person you're in relationship with and see what they've been through. And that's a hard place to get to, but that's, you know, when, when people can get there, you're like, oh, okay, 
they're growing. I think they're going to make it like th there's, there's real hope here. Mm -hmm. So right. I love that. I love that, um, that benefit of the way you run your practice, having both sides of the story. Yeah. Yeah. Hearing the whole thing. I mean, cause we hear stories of like, you know, uh, people in our recovery group for um, loved ones, some of the things that they've admitted that they've done or said, you know, while their person was in active um, addiction, I'm always like, wow, you know, like if you had had a, if, if you just had a one-sided counselor, you know, the addict had that, they wouldn't know, you know, what that person has been doing to help or maybe not help a situation. So that whole family approach is fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, since we've kind of talked about like detachment and, per and I feel like there's a lot of like personality styles and traits and just things of how you grew up that I think really kind of influence the way you are in relationship to others. And I know the, it's not a new theory. You mean our childhoods impact our adulthoods? I just saw a funny meme the other day that said something like, why is it the last half of your life you're spending time fixing the first half of your life? Like, <laughs> it's like, that's so true. But you know, and I know that there's like that attachment theory and I haven't really dove into it and I know it's not new, but it seems like it's a little bit more on the, a little bit more on the trend. It's being talked about a lot more. Yeah. Now. Um, and I think it makes a lot of sense, but is this um, round four? This is round four. Oh, how exciting. Round four attachment. So like with the insecure, anxious attachment, usually that person has like a low self-esteem and positive view of others. Mm -hmm. So like, I don't, I don't know what, person I am, what attachment style I am. So, so I'm always kind of curious about those people that fear the abandonment and then anxious attachment maybe explains why some people have trouble detaching from the partner. Like I had yeah, no trouble. I had, I mean, yeah, I had had years of like shitty behavior that just made me be like, I'm done. I'm done listening to you. And I don't, you know, it was totally subconscious. But I had no problem just being like, that's it. I'm done. I'm cutting you off. I can cut people out of my life very easily. You were a little harder. Good thing. Um, so I'm wondering if those anxious detachment, people that have trouble um, detaching from their partner who suffers from a substance abuse disorder, um, like yeah. how we can approach that. Yeah. The, the, so for some people, detachment comes yeah, easier like, than others. For some people, the thought of abandonment makes detachment unthinkably difficult. Um, the only reason, like, I feel like for me, I had, I was done with you and it was okay to detach, but I had a real problem not wanting to argue back and tell you how wrong you were. Yeah. Um, so I think that just perpetuated our 10 years a little bit. More. I don't know what you are either, but you do not have anxious attachment. Yeah. I no. don't think I have anxious attachment. So but it's hard for me when I hear people that have anxious attachment, I'm like, you know, and I can tell that's their personality type and they don't want to like, Oh, I can't do that. I'm like, you need to cut off a little bit for yourself, but like, how do you approach that? Do you like recognize and kind of work with those different attachment styles to help formulate a plan and some advice? Yeah. I, can, I can definitely follow what you're saying as far as like, it's harder for people that have anxious attachment to back up from this. And well, first let me back up when, when we're talking about this whole idea of detachment, when Matt, when you were first talking about it, it's almost like you said, like when the person says they're done, that's, that's like the big, the big daddy attachment. But then there's just also just let me just sort of emotionally back up from this, right? Let me just bring it back five steps. I'm not saying I'm 
leaving you, but let me bring it back. Like, just let me step back. I, I definitely think that's helpful. You kind of have to do that before you can do the positive stuff. So it's harder for people who have anxious attachment to do that. But the thing I would add into this conversation is, is that when you love someone and the attachment's been fine and all of a sudden they're addicted, it causes an attachment trauma. Same as if someone cheated. The same, you know, if this is a kid you've loved. So what happens is, is no matter what your attached style, you lose your mind, you go crazy. <laughs> like, and then you turn into like anxious avoidment, which is I hate you, don't leave me. Like, it's like both, it's everything. It's all the time. And, and that happens even if you didn't have that attached style to begin with, it throws you into that state because it's so confusing you don't understand it it's like we were great and then we weren't now they hate me and they won't stop you know it's just it just it's dysregulating yeah yeah that that's very interesting um we've we've heard people talk about and there has been stuff written about um as the loved one you're addicted to, and i think you've addressed this too i'm sure you've addressed this you are um addicted just like the substance user is addicted, but you're addicted to the relationship. And so um, there's a lot of pain involved in that as well. Um, that, that's a terminology, that's terminology you've used, right? Where you're, you're actually addicted to being in this relationship. Well, I do use that because it's just people understand that, but really it's a little bit more complex than that. It's like, what happens is, is you get obsessed with trying to make this person see the truth. I don't really think it's so much you're addicted to the relationship in the in the old school sense of the way, but it's like you see this problem and, and you do love this person, but you can't understand why they don't see it. And so you get so preoccupied with trying to make them see it, trying to convince them, and then they start gaslighting you and telling you crazy you don't see it. So then you get really, really more involved in it because then you're like, now you got to prove it. So they can see it and show them you're right the whole time. Like, here's the evidence, you know, like it's obsessive. Like mm -hmm. it's not so much like I can't leave this relationship, but it's like, a, if you could just see this would be fine. There's just this desperation to try to make this person see it. And, and when you're doing that, you're, you're slowing it, you're slowing them down from seeing it. And that, that's where I do think this detachment thing, Matt, it, it is the thing you've got to, you got to back it up <laughs> five, mm -hmm. you know, 10 steps. So we can just, look at what's happening and make strategic choices. And, and when I try to get people to interact with each other different, I'm not even trying to say have empathy because we're not even at a place to have empathy on either side. Okay. I'm just saying, what is it that you want from this other person? Okay. Let's think about what's the best, most like effective statistically, we're going to get the right response. How do we get, how do we win? How do we get the response we want? How do I get my wife to be nicer to me? How do I get my husband to come to dinner? Whatever it is, like, let's figure out how to strategically make that happen. And then once that starts happening, then we like each other a little better and then we can have empathy. But it's not even because I feel bad for you. It's just about like, how do I, how do I win this war? How do I get what I want out of this? And we got to, we got to stop with the emotions. We got to think, what do I need to say to him? make him think this, you know? Well, I do know. And what you're describing, you know, in the context of how do I win this war in the context of war, it's, this is a strategic change, not a, not a tactical change. When you go from, and we meet a lot of people that are in this, this zone of how can I just convince him that what I'm seeing is reality? I know it's reality. I know it's the truth. How can I convince this person? I'm putting everything I've got into it because I believe if he'll only see this, then everything will be fine. And then you're saying, 
let them figure it out on their own back away. Um, you're a, you're a hundred percent right, but that's not just for, for the, for people who are in that zone, you're not asking them to wear a different color sweater. I mean, you're asking them to do a 180 in everything, you know, the approach that they've taken. And it's really, really hard for people to recognize that that's, that's gotta be the next move. And there's and there's, there's serious benefit in that. Right. And, and I think that's where it comes back to what Sherry's saying. A lot of people can understand that, you know, intellectually, but if you have severe attachment trauma, like from childhood, you may not have the capacity to do it. Even if you understand it, even if you know, I'm right, even if you're like, I get it, it's just, you're so wounded and emotionally reactive. It may be, it's, it's more difficult for some people, but yeah. Yeah. But I'm not asking you to have a different goal. The goal is I want them to see it. I'm just giving you a better, more effective way to get it to happen. Yeah. That's, that's really great. Um, the last thing I would say about attachment styles is, um, along with my imposter syndrome, uh, these different attachment styles, these different childhood experiences, this is, I think, Sherry, the main reason why you and I don't offer advice as far as should you stay or should you go? Um, you know, yes, we offer advice on detachment strategies and, and things you can do, but we don't ever tell someone you need to leave that bum or you need to stay and stick it out. Cause it's going to get better. We don't, we never go there. And one of the reasons is it's so complex. What brought the person into the relationship, different childhood experiences, different attachment styles. And it comes down for me, it comes down to that pain concoction. I talked about People have different pain tolerances, different, you know, there are things that you put up with for me that other people would be like, no way in hell I'd stick around and put up with that. And, you know, conversely, there are things that other people have put up with that you wouldn't tolerate, you know, in a million years. So I think our approach has been to be respectful of the fact that people are going to put up with different things. They have different pain tolerances and it's not our place to tell someone when enough is enough. They have to figure that out on their own. Does that make sense, Amber? No, I totally agree. I, I never, I never tell people they have to put their kids out. I, I may talk to them about if you do this, you're likely to get this. If you do that, you're likely to get that. Like yeah. out pros and cons. But, but I'm like, first of all, if if I tell you to throw someone out and then they die next week, you gonna you gonna say that's my fault because you didn't want to do it and I made you do it. <laughs> no. But the other thing else I say, you know what? When you're done, just like Sherry said, you're gonna know you're done, and there's nothing I'm gonna say either way to make you stay. Right. When you are done, you're going to know it. You don't need mm -hmm. to tell you. So, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, there's nothing that's truer and more um, obscure than that statement. And you are 100% right. You will know when you know. And I can't define that for you because everyone's different. Yeah. It's fascinating. I usually will say, don't don't throw them out while you're mad about something. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, because the reason why you shouldn't do that is because you're only doing that because you're mad right now. And once mad goes away, you're going to take it back. And then you go look like an idiot. Because <laughs> mm -hmm. then, you know, you're not sticking to your word. So think about it for, for a minute, right? And if it's sticking around and you still done tomorrow and you still done the next day, then, 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 then maybe. <laughs> yeah, well, that's that empty threat sort of thing, you know, and going back. So then that's really hard to like, you know, build that relationship of boundaries. I mean, boundaries aren't necessarily for the addict. It's for you. But when you say, I don't want you to drink around me, or I don't want you to drink in the house. And you say that when you're mad and then they do it. And then, you know, then you just let it happen and you have no consequence 
for it or you don't leave yourself or whatever your boundary is. It's really yeah. hard. Like, cause I, I had some idle threats that went out, like, you know, we should just get divorced and those sort of things when you were drinking and we would argue. So I knew it's not what I wanted, but it was just the quick move to do mm -hmm. to say and to threaten. Right. If you're, if you're keeping score at home and you're waiting for Sherry to walk around the the ring with her sequin one piece on holding up the card for round five. One piece. Thing. We're going to, well, I think that's what they, I, I just think. get it from the Rocky movies, okay. right? The person who says what round it is. Yeah. We're going to skip round five. Cause we kind of, it was also about attachment styles yeah. and we kind of, we kind of covered that all in round four. We had yeah. a big round four, a lot of, a lot of blows landed. It was great. So we're on to round six. All right. So, um, Amber, I don't know if you know who Esther Perel is, but Matt is obsessed. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it's kind of unhealthy fixation on this person. So, <laughs> but he he loves he's the reference. He's like he's looking at you, shaking his head, like mm -hmm. he's not uh -huh. even. She's, she's she's my hall pass. <laughs> <laughs> she's like I know she's not, but she's significantly older than us, but she still looks great. Yeah. So his uh his favorite Belgian American psychotherapist says That's for you, Jane. That's for you, Jane. You can't take care of a person and have a romantic relationship with that person sim simultaneously. So I think you often use the kind of dumb down. You can't be your addict's caretaker and your lover at the same time. Can't be your mom and your lover. Yeah, can't be your mom and your lover. Yeah. I, I'm trying to be general neutral in case you know, appreciate that. Yeah, a little bit more woke than you. Um, Amber, <laughs> how do you? How do you? Do you agree with this? Throwing the jab in there, I like it. I know. <laughs> so, uh, do you agree with that? Like that caretaking romantic partner role, and and does this explain why it's important for people to often seek recovery outside of the relationship? I'm I'm follow, I'm definitely following what you're saying, and I am a fan of of Esther Perel. Um, I, I do think I think you can be attracted to your spouse if you take care of them if they take care of you back. <laughs> but I think if it's all one way and it's like you're taking care of them, and then you you feel like they're just a kid, like you don't have that respect for them, and you don't have that admiration for them, and you don't have that appreciation for them. So it's kind of hard to feel sexy about them, right? <laughs> like because because it's just not attractive, right? Like, you know, it, I think it's okay to do the caretaking, but we want we want something back, right? Like, I don't know, something, you know? Like most women yeah. are protected, right? <laughs> and looked after, right? Like if they give you that back, then it all works fine, I think. I think, I just yeah. Repeat what Amber said in your own words. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> no, I think, I think you're right. I think part of the problem with especially in active addiction is the pendulum swings so far for a lot of us for me specifically when i was drinking i could get real arrogant real loud real sure of myself and there's nothing attractive about that but then the pink pendulum would swing past the equilibrium where i potentially could be attractive and someone you'd want to spend some time with over to the other side where now I'm at the bottom of the shame cycle and I'm this slobbery puddle and I'm apologizing and I'm begging for help and I'm telling Sherry, I can't do this alone and I need her. And so both of the states that I spend a fair bit of time in are really unattractive. I agree with you, Amber, that 
it's, I mean, why would you get married if you're not going to support each other, if you're not going to nurture each other, but you spend so much time in either this, you know, objectively unattractive state, um, of arrogance. And then the other bit of time you spend is, you know, in the mom zone. And when it just goes back and forth, it, it kind of reminds me of the pop culture definition of insanity. When you do the same thing over and over again, and you expect different results, you just put your spouse in these bad situations over and over again. And it's not, you know, it's not an occasional, like, you know, I had a bad day at work and I need to cry on your shoulder about this. This is I'm doing this to myself and I keep whining to you about it. And it just becomes Mm -hmm. ridiculously unattractive. One of the things I like most about what Esther Perel says is, you know, attraction isn't, it isn't what we think of when we first get together. It isn't about looks. It isn't about, um, you know, I don't know what it is about is, uh, you know, showing up for the other person in a mature, responsible, peaceful way, where you're consistent and you're humble. And I, what I have found in our relationship and what we found working with other people is when the person suffering from addiction reaches that point in recovery where, um, they're, they're performing at work and they're performing with the kids and they're performing in the community. And, um, that is as important for their spouse to see as anything else because you start to be an attractive contributing member of the family and the community again. Does that make sense, Amber? Yeah, definitely. For sure. Yeah. I think that's the key to getting some is what it says here in my notes. But I'll say this and Matt, you'll like this because you don't, you don't come right out and say this, but I have the idea that you, you kind of think this you're usually more like PC about it. But um, one of the things I like about what Esther Perel says is she says, you know, most people think like, well, if we can make things better in the house, like if he just did more dishes, if he did this, the sex life would get better. And I think women think that's true. But I don't think that is true, actually. <laughs> I have some reasons I don't answer. But if the sex life gets better, a lot of times those other things do get better. And people, a lot of women, I think, especially see that in reverse. Well, if if I, you know, if he treated me better, if he helped me out more at the house with the kids or whatever, you know, I might feel like it more. But the truth is there's some hormonal things that happen, especially with when we just don't feel like it. We're just trying to decide why that is. <laughs> but a lot of times if you if you get the things in the bedroom right, some of the other things get better. And and this question, I don't I don't usually say this on my channel because it's not popular, so I'll say it on your channel. <laughs> but like um, you know, I get that question a lot. A lot of the guys that I see mostly men, <laughs> and it's like they're on restrictions. Like some of them are like, I'm not sleeping with you until you're six months over. I'm like, dang, you know, like. But I'm like, with with my sort of strategic thinking, I'm like, okay, ladies, but you have like this big bargaining chip, okay? Like, let's just think about this. Like, I get it, right? They're not cute or whatever. But if, if what you're trying to accomplish is X, Y, and Z, I'm like, let's use all the tools. How do we get X, Y, and Z? That's just the way I think. Like, you know, is this about being fair? Is this about getting what you want <laughs> kind of thing? So. Well, I think that hormonal thing is absolutely spot on, like. I mean, I'm not saying, you know, use like sex to your advantage in a negative connotation, you know, but if, if you know, and you understand that hormones play a part into the relationship outside of the bedroom after the sex has happened or wherever you want to have sex in the house, I don't know, but, and you know, that it carries over. And it's going to be beneficial to both of you. Right. You know, 
Right. And I, I, we've talked about, I think it was even just a recent podcast. We talked about how a lot of men don't find that connection and vulnerability until after they have had sex and orgasm because there's just, you know, right. that sort of mindset of I'm closed off, but now there's that connection, you know? Right. Yeah. With this, uh, taking the conversation here, Amber, you've definitely opened the door toward, you know, a big part of the direction that we are going with our work and our research. And um, it, I, I firmly believe that if the goal is to rebuild trust after a relationship has suffered from addiction or really any maladaptive coping mechanism, any trauma, anything bad, if the goal is to rebuild trust when trust is broken, I, I don't think there's any better path to doing that than leveraging intimacy. And as a man, I run the risk of sounding like I'm saying to all the women out there, you just got to give it up. And that's not at all what I'm saying. I, I, I think, I think there are mutual benefits. And when I talk about intimacy, I'm talking about emotional intimacy, physical intimacy, and sexual satisfaction as three different components um, that have different levers to, to, to work those different components. Mm -hmm. Um, but they're all important because you cannot be emotionally intimate and physically intimate and have sexual satisfaction without trust. Like it's impossible. It's impossible to get there. So there, there's a lot that can be done. I, I think the mistake that a lot of couples make is our relationships a mess. We don't trust each other. We've suffered this addiction. We're in early recovery. The last thing I'm going to think about is sex. And when you just throw that aside and say, you know, maybe someday, I, I honestly, I think that's, that's a mistake because like you said, you're, you're, you're discounting one of the tools that can be most effective to rebuilding trust. And it isn't just about a woman giving it up when she doesn't want to, there's a, a ton more to it than that. No, because and the way I say it, it sounds like, you know, this is like manipulative, but I really don't mean it that way. It's because it produces the right brain chemicals in both sides to make you like each other enough to be nicer to each other. Like I was working with this lady just this week and she and her partner are on the brink of divorce. I mean, they both talked to the lawyers like, I'm pretty sure like we're done or whatever. And I'm like, have you thought about having sex? <laughs> and she's like, no. I was like, well, when's the last time? And she's like, well, you know when it was like three years ago and I told you whatever. And I said, well, maybe you should try it. I know you don't think that's I know that sounds crazy, but like you might be a little nicer to each other for five minutes. And then you might have enough reprieve to like, I don't know, work on some of this stuff. So yeah, that's that's usually and you don't want to say it as a man. I don't want to say it as a woman because I'm like, I feel like I betrayed my peeps by saying that. You know I mean? like, I'm like, oh, I'm really gonna get canceled, <laughs> you know. Like I don't want to say it, but I think I believe it. <laughs> Well, yeah, I, I get you. I'll, I'll be like, Oh, and I fought against it for so long in the yeah. relationship, you know, like I knew that it was just a way for him to get that hormone release and feel some connection, even though I didn't want it and he could feel it. He could tell, you know, and then that just, I could tell you didn't want it. Yeah. And that just perpetuated the, the relationship and maybe it sped it up a little bit, sped up that you know, feeling bad, depression, anxiety, all those things, you know, when you were drinking. 
Yeah. The rejection but, inherent in consent when you would agree, but you didn't want it. It felt, it felt just like rejection anyway. Yeah. 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 So well, I, I get how you're like, Oh, you don't want to like say that as a woman. Cause you, you know, it's, it's your body, but it also does good things for you. And you're right. You have to be a little excited about it and be nice. And if you're going to go <laughs> that far and have sex, yeah, there's going to be a little. <laughs> I'm glad you opened this door, Amber, because uh, we talked about my half-assed research earlier, but I'm actually working on a research project with like a legit professor through an accredited university. Oh, and I'll be knocking not- on your... I'll be knocking on your door this spring to see if it might be something you might want to encourage your uh, YouTube channel listeners and watchers to participate in. So right. It, right. it is about all this stuff we just talked about. More right. to come on that. And, and yeah. I'll add on to that to kind of connect that sex piece to some of these other pieces. Is I tell when I'm talking to family members and I'm trying to say, how do you build this influence of this person? I said, you know what it really is, is you want them. I know you love them. They know you love them, but your love is a freaking burden. Okay. Like, you know, you say, I love you. It's like, oh my gosh, stop. It's not helpful. Okay. (laughs) What they want is to be liked. Mm, Yes. Them to feel liked because when you like them, guess what happens? They like you back. And then guess what happens? They want to make you happy. Like literally that's all I do with my clients. I just like them. I don't have to tell them what to do to get sober. I just literally like them. And I just cheer later on. I'm like, you know what? It's so awesome. And then they know I think they should get sober. And they just come, guess what? I got a week and a half sober. I'm like, what? Like, it's the relationship that's the change. They don't need me to tell them what to do. They already know that. They already know in their heart the one thing they've not done they need to do or whatever it is. Like, they don't need me for that. They like literally need me to build them up into it. And that's what makes it work with the people I see. Yeah. And that being liked and, you know, there's all those things that go along with it. And then that just is, mm-hmm. you know, self-esteem building. So then it gives you reason to like yourself. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I'll never forget the time when Sherry and I finally recognized that we will always love each other. We, we have kids together. We've been together forever. That's never going to change. But I recognized, oh, she doesn't like me anymore. And so the power of like is stronger in this context than love. And again, it's another thing to be leveraged and to be understood. And so I can see why you're, you're so successful in relating to people. If that's your main focus, that makes so much sense to me. That's great, Amber. Right. I just, I just find their good thing and I'm kind of good at it almost to a curse. Cause I can see people's like gifts easier than they do. And then I just want them to like, be their best selves or whatever but I just see that and then they like that and then they want to come and tell me things and then they want to like impress me more you know like it just naturally works mm-hmm. oh, I love that that's fantastic yeah all right we on to the time? last round we have time? okay great well in recent conversations in our groups we've had this word victim it's often I know I rejected it in the beginning of our recovery I didn't want to be a victim. I grew up with my mother playing the victim and it just gave such a negative connotation to what I have gone through, but I felt like there was a better word and I hated that like mentality of the victim mode. So I know Matt that you um, also, you're pretty (laughs) self-assured and uh, you don't always like to listen to people around you. 
But what do you think about the idea of the victim supporting the perpetrator? Like, you know, like when I, when you were drinking and you were being nasty and unkind, and then you came to me for support, I felt like, why are you coming to me? Like you just violated me in some way emotionally. And yeah. Like, what do you feel about that? Like, how do you take up? I think that people suffering from addiction are much more likely and much better at compartmentalizing than the loved ones that they're impacting. As a drinker, I would go through these phases. I would drink and think I had it under control and I would do that for a while. And then I would drink too much once. And when that event started, I would drink too much. I would do all the awful things. And then the next day or two days later, whatever, I would start the apology cycle and then I'd lick my wounds for a few days and then I would start drinking again. And so let's say that takes a week. I can put that in a little box and say, oh, and in there was a lot of apologizing. So we can check that off the list. It's taken care of. Let's put that on the shelf and never, ever talk about it again or think about it again. You as a loved one, you are not, that's not how it works. Though the incidents just compile. So they add up, they're building building blocks of resentment. And so we're building a big wall of resentment. And so, um, so the reason that I think the word victim is useful in explaining how these relationships work is especially on the the side of the addict who's compartmentalized and moved away from each situation, never wants to talk about them again. I like to use, I know this is probably an oversimplification and, and might seem crass, but if you think of uh, like Sherry, you were walking down a dark alley and I was your mugger. I came and, you know, robbed from you at gunpoint. Um, that's a lot of trauma. No one in the world would ever expect you to be part of my rehabilitation solution. No one would ever expect you to counsel me and support me in becoming not a mugger anymore. You're clearly the victim of a crime and I'm the perpetrator. And I kind of think it's sort of like that when we expect the loved one who has been violated over and over and over and the it's compiled it's not compartmentalized it's compiled and you've got years of trauma about this for me to expect you to come and be my number one support system and i totally buy in to amber suggesting that you suggesting that the loved one be part of the solution be a player beyond the team i just think it's really really important for me as the person suffering from addiction to go find a different team captain and other people in the team as well, and not not put too much on my victim to to be the the one and only support system. And we see that a lot. I bet people who before they come to you, they've leaned on their spouse like they're the only person supporting them, and and so your involvement must become so important because now you're the team captain. Does that make any sense? It it does make sense, and I'm glad that you sort of brought that up. It's about. And and I when I teach families this, there's always this part of me inside that feels bad because everything I'm telling these family members to do is completely unfair. So I like to try to remind them, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> it's not valid. It is not fair. And I'm not telling you to stay. In fact, I don't know that I would stay. I, I'd probably be out because I, I totally know what's going on. So I'm not saying I would. I'm just saying if you're trying to stay and this is what you want to make happen, this is how to do it. But I'm not telling that you that you should do it. <laughs> just telling you this how to do it. Right. Like, and so I, I think that that's important to acknowledge because it's not that it's not wrong to not support them. It's not that it's not wrong to leave. Totally. Like it's totally 
fair and valid, like Matt said. It's not, it's, it feels bad to ask the victim to be the one to, it, it is wrong, but they're, they're the ones that have the most power in the situation. They, they're the ones that actually have more control of the situation because this other person is like, they're just not in control at all, right? Like, and so if there's one person that can impact, it really probably is the family member, but it's not fair. <laughs> and when I work with the people who have the addictions on that side, I work with them a lot about understanding the, the spouse's perspective and the health, like you said earlier, the healthier they get, the more they can do that. But you almost have to build their self-esteem enough to be able to acknowledge yes. that they have victimized this other person. So we got to like build you up and then say, Hey, you did this bad thing. You're not a bad person, but we're going to fix it. But you need to fix this, you know, like you kind of have to like get there. That's another one of those big turning points when you can talk about what has happened and what has happened to the loved ones without re-traumatizing the person. They've reached some kind of a, a level of self-esteem and that's exactly the right word, self-esteem. They've reached this, this level of not hating themselves enough that they can hear the stories without it re-traumatizing. That is a huge turning point. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. Yeah, and I guess that's why... For me, when we started saying, let's blame the alcohol, you were a, Sherry, you were a victim of alcohol just as much as Matt who drank it, you know, like that was a way that I could step into that victim where, you know, word without, without feeling. being in victim mode. I think victim yeah. mode is a very negative connotation, Yeah, but you can be a victim without being yeah, in victim mode. Exactly. Cause right. I just associated them together. So I think there's a lot of like misunderstanding. Of, right. of that. And when you say, Sherry, when you say, you know, you're just as much of a victim of alcohol as Matt was, I'd say you're much more of a victim than Matt was because here's what I say. Yeah, it's bad for them, but they're under anesthesia for like 70% of it. Okay. You're not. Yeah. You felt every bit of it. <laughs> so, like, a lot of the work that I do is actually for the family members, right? Like, it, it's that, it's that understanding. It's not just this one person you're helping, it's everyone around them, you know? Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. Every time we talk to you, I just feel more confident that the model that you've created is, I mean, I know there's no right and wrong and there's a million ways to do recovery, but God, you've got a good thing going. Um, it, it makes so much sense. And uh, we really appreciate you coming on and sharing your knowledge. I feel like you, you got to kind of like, you know, look at that, the scorecard here. And yeah, I mean, Matt, you have a lot to offer. Oh, thank you, you. You say a lot of words, so. I don't disagree with anything Matt said. I, I agree. I'm just adding too. And if you do this too, that I'm just really adding to what you're saying, Matt. But here's mm -hmm. what I'm going to give you all, all your stuff. I'll give you all the sex cards. <laughs> you're right. <laughs> I'm giving them all to you. You're right about that. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. so can I call myself a sex expert? Uh -huh. Yes. The intimacy you're right about. Not how right. you say yeah. that to people. You figure that out. You let me know. Oh, I know. Well, you, not you a very brought it up. Message. It is not. It is you not. You brought it up. I'm, pr I'm proud of you, Amber. You're the one that introduced the topic. I'm. Because I can say it on your channel. Well, thank you so much. This is this is great. Every time we interact with you, whether it's on our channel or on, or on yours. Um, I just feel like we grow closer and we learn a ton and hopefully our listeners get a lot out of it. They, they, the feedback is always really positive and we really, really appreciate you being here. I just can't, I already can't wait to work with you again after the pre-conversation we had about paint colors. 
I'm expecting one of the walls behind us to be a different color the next time we talk. We'll see how that goes. Yeah. Thanks, guys. As always, it was super fun. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much, Amber. Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to soberevolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.